Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. As speculation runs rampant about the health and location of North Korean ruler Kim Jong-un, this episode features an in-depth discussion of who Kim is and how he commanded all the levers of power in his isolated yet nuclear-armed country at such a young age. A tale told in a new book published just this week titled Becoming Kim Jong-un, a former CIA officer's insights into North Korea's enigmatic young dictator. That former CIA officer is Brookings Senior Fellow Jung Pak, who holds the SK Korea Foundation Chair in Korea Studies at Brookings. She's interviewed here by Senior Fellow Michael O'Hanlon, the Director of Research and Foreign Policy and the Sidney Stein Jr. Chair. Also in this episode, Senior Fellow Sarah Bender offers four lessons about how Congress has responded to the coronavirus pandemic and what may follow. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts to get information about and links to all of our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, the Current, and our Events Podcast. First up, here's Sarah Bender with what's happening in Congress. I'm Sarah Bender, a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. Congress and the president have now enacted four emergency bills to respond to the health and economic crises caused by the global pandemic. All four secured broad bipartisan support, and most lawmakers believe more relief will be needed. But cooperation is beginning to fray. This most recent package totaled just under $500 billion, which means that Congress has committed roughly $3 trillion for emergency aid so far. This last measure replenishes funds for small businesses, sends money to hospitals treating COVID-19 patients, and ramps up testing to detect the virus. Here are four lessons about what Congress just did and what might come next. Lesson number one, even in a crisis, these congressional parties are at battle. A lot of folks suggest that Congress just turned off its partisan switch to make these four deals possible. And at some point, they'll flip the partisan switch back on. But I don't think that quite captures what we see on Capitol Hill. For sure, crisis can motivate congressional parties to cooperate. Why? Neither party in a crisis wants the public to blame them for stalemate. No surprise, then, that when millions file for unemployment and tens of thousands of Americans die, Congress can move swiftly. But that doesn't mean partisans lay down swords. This deal took shape only after Senate Democrats block Republicans from adopting a measure that would only replenish funds for small businesses. Senate Republicans then promptly killed Democrats' preferred bill, which added in funds for hospitals and state and local governments. Democrats stood their ground even when the small business fund ran dry. They just negotiated with the administration to combine the wish lists of both parties. So the parties got much of what each wanted without having to want the same thing. And that creates a spectacle of bipartisanship. Lesson number two. This is centralized congressional bargaining on steroids. In recent years, party leaders have tended to dominate negotiations on big-ticket items, often with the support of rank-and-file who believe leaders will secure deals they can endorse and sell to voters back home. Negotiations on this fourth bill centralize power even more firmly in leaders' hands. When the public expects Congress to act fast, lawmakers are even more willing to allow party leaders to bargain on their behalf. Of course, the unique health risks of the coronavirus, isolating most lawmakers in their districts and states, further concentrates leaders' power. The Speaker called members back to Washington only after the parties had inked a deal. But patience in both chambers is running thin with this arrangement. 
Senator Mike Lee of Utah said on the chamber floor last week when the Senate adopted the bill by voice vote, quote, this crisis is too big to leave up to a small handful of people, end quote. Lesson number three, policy outcomes matter in a crisis. Students of Congress often say that voters reward lawmakers for the positions they take rather than for the policies that result. Why? Because in most cases, blame or credit for policy outcomes don't stick to individual lawmakers. That's mostly because a single legislator's vote rarely determines the result. So lawmakers take on popular positions and worry less about how the policies will unfold months or even sometimes years later. But in this pandemic, the news media reports daily about whether Congress's policy solutions are working. Photos of nurses wearing trash bags for protection, large companies like Shake Shack securing forgivable loans intended for small businesses, well-endowed schools like Harvard and Princeton receiving federal aid, reports like these catch the public and lawmakers' attention. No surprise, then, that party leaders moved relatively quickly on last week's deal. They replenished the fund for real small businesses, they pushed Treasury to tighten program guidelines, and they added more money for hospitals. These course corrections aim to produce better policies, but lawmakers also want to avoid embarrassing headlines. Lesson number four. Pandemic politics are surely going to turn even more partisan. Here are two battle lines that have already formed. First, is more government relief too costly? Republicans are starting to show signs of bailout fatigue. But Democrats dismiss this newfound wariness of debt, arguing that Republican tax cuts in 2017 added nearly $2 trillion to the federal debt. Second, who deserves additional relief? Speaker Pelosi has drawn a line in the sand. The next bill must include aid for state and local governments, which face declining tax revenues while pandemic costs continue to rise. Republicans disagree, even amongst themselves. Some agree with the Democrats, but others have lined up behind Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who calls this aid blue state bailouts. Meanwhile, the virus is now emerging in rural Republican hotspots, and more pain and layoffs are forecast. Congress will continue to face public pressure to act, but they are a long way from cooperating on another deal. And now on with the interview. Here's Michael O'Hanlon with Jung Pak, author of Becoming Kim Jong-un. Hi, this is Michael O'Hanlon, and I have a real privilege today of speaking with my colleague and good friend Jung Pak, one of the world's top experts on North Korea, who's just written this amazing book, Becoming Kim Jong-un. And I just want to say, I want to gush just for a minute before I welcome Jung Pak to say hello as well and just say this is one of my favorite Brookings books of all time. I've been at Brookings a quarter century. I've been reading Brookings stuff for 35 or 40 years, and this is just in my top five favorite books of fascination, what I learned, the quality of the writing, the intrigue, the storytelling, and obviously the importance of dealing with a guy who now has perhaps several dozen nuclear weapons at his beck and call and is one of the main threats for the United States and allies throughout Asia and even in North America with Kim's 
ICBM long-range missile threats and so forth. So, Jung, congratulations and just really exciting to be part of this conversation today. Thanks, Mike. Thanks so much for those kind words. And I have to say, if we can engage in some mutual admiration for a couple of seconds, is that I think everybody should have a Mike O'Hanlon in their life. And it was my privilege to enter Brookings and to have somebody like Mike to be there supporting me, championing me. He read the manuscript of the first draft of this book and ensured that it was reviewed by external reviewers who made this book so much better than I ever started with. And so thank you, Mike, for being such a good friend, a good colleague, a mentor. I work my ass off, and I'm good at what I do, but I think I would not have gotten to this place without having you supporting me and cheering me on all the way. So thank you so much. Well, it's a pleasure. And before we get to Kim Jong-un, let's stay a little bit on Jung Pak just for another minute and talk a little bit about how you got to this point in your career and your knowledge of this enigmatic dictator and the path that you took, because it wasn't as if you set out in life to necessarily study the North Korean dictatorial regime of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. You got there sort of through a circuitous route, and you did a PhD, but in American history, as I recall, not in East Asian studies. Could you just explain a little bit about how you got interested in North Korea and how you wound up at the CIA, which, of course, is where you learned a lot of what you know about Kim Jong-un? I'm not sure that any child or anybody grows up thinking that, yes, I want to be the North Korea expert um, or a North Korea expert. Some might grow up to say, yes, I really do want to work for the CIA or do policymaking or work in the U.S. government in some way, but that was not a part of my thinking at all, ever. My interests were more toward writing and the arts and history. So my major at Colgate, where I graduated, was in history, got my PhD at Columbia in U.S. history. And I went into Columbia to graduate school thinking that I was going to focus on African-American history because I was really, really interested in how the civil rights movement, slavery, civil war and reconstruction. So I was interested in all of those things and how we are the America of today as a result of the actions of some of the most vulnerable parts of our society. So I went into Columbia thinking I was going to do African-American history, and I wanted to study with Eric Foner, who's one of the big names in this field. As I was going through graduate school, I realized that my interests were much more on, and I think slavery also is part of this narrative of transnational history, how people are transplanted. And I think maybe it had to do with my immigrant background as well transplanting of ideas, the transfer of people, how ideas in a particular setting grow, change, adapt. And that led me toward U.S. activities abroad, and not just the government activities, but in the way that non-governmental actors, and in my case, I studied American evangelical missionaries who went overseas, and how their ideas and how their very presence changes a society and how they're changed by the society that they're living in. And as I was studying religion and how it takes root, I decided to look at how religion influences foreign relations, U.S. foreign relations. So again, this transnational thinking, how people can influence big government decisions. And I looked at Korea, U.S. missionaries in Korea, studying how religion might have affected the beginning of the Cold War there and how the U.S. looked at Korea from a Cold War perspective. 
After a while, I decided that I didn't want to be in academia anymore. And so while I was working on my dissertation, I applied for the CIA based on a friend's recommendation. And once I got in, and I was hired by the CIA to cover North Korea. So I went from African-American history, Civil War and Reconstruction, to studying one of the most bizarre, enigmatic dictators. So there's no linear path toward where I am today. But, you know, I think all of those experiences and all of the thinking influences how I look at Kim. It's fascinating. And you wound up at the CIA just a little before, as I recall, Kim Jong-un became the leader of North Korea in 2011. Is that correct in my timeline? I arrived at CIA just after Kim Jong-il's stroke in late 2008 and started right around the time that President Obama was inaugurated. The way I look at my experience at the CIA is I think that's Kim Jong-un's experience, too, because our paths crossed in that way, but in parallel worlds. Right. So let's start talking about this Kim Jong-un character. And you begin your book by reminding people that he's been caricatured in a number of different ways, partly because he came on the scene and he was so young, still in his late 20s when he became the leader of his country, as I recall. And you mentioned his father, Kim Jong-il. He was the third Kim in this country's history and the dynasty that's been ongoing now. But he was sort of a unknown quantity and also a little bit rumply, a little bit rotund, a little baby-faced, and he got all sorts of caricatures in those early years. So I wonder if, just to help frame our subsequent discussion, if you could describe how you began the book and what some of those caricatures of Kim were, especially in the early years. I think those caricatures still exist today. It depends on where your gaze is. If your gaze is on Kim Jong-un himself or even Kim Jong-il, his father, is that because until now, until 2018, that we didn't actually hear him speak in this way with the beginning of the summit, that when we just look at Kim Jong-un, he is ripe for caricature in that he has what many would consider a bizarre or unconventional haircut, that he wears these very shapeless Mao suits with trousers that are too wide, and that his weight is ripe for caricature. So I think when we look at just Kim Jong-un as a physical entity, it makes him very vulnerable to looking at him in a rocket man sort of way or Pyongyang's pig boy and others. And it was same with Kim Jong-il as well, his father, that he was five foot two or five foot three. He wore platform shoes. His hair was permed so that he could add a couple of inches of height. And so all of these things contribute to a sense that this was somebody who's not to be taken seriously. I would also think that there is some element of otherizing this leader, this very bizarre dictator in Asia somewhere. He acts differently. He behaves differently. The country is so isolated, et cetera. And I think that really reduces Kim as a person to a caricature, I think, to our detriment. And so what I was trying to do with this book, which is why I like the cover image so much, is that he is not a caricature. There is more than two dimensions to him, and that he is a three-dimensional character with hopes and fears, constraints, ambitions, and aspirations, frustrations. And I wanted to put all of that into this book and give him a fuller treatment than what we're used to. 
Yeah, and in fact, I heard you say the other day to remind us all that dictators are people too. <laughs> they may not be nice people, uh, and Kim certainly isn't a nice person, I don't think, and we'll get into that a little more, but he is a human being, and he does have all these emotions and jealousies and maybe paranoias and maybe not. So I want to come back and hear you explain how he established himself and made sure the world didn't just think of him as a 10-foot baby a kid in the playpen with a few nuclear-tipped missiles to go along with his other toys. And I know uh, he spent a lot of time trying to disabuse the world that he could be pushed around. But if we could go back now to earlier years first, and then we'll come up to the present and the time he's been in leadership. But you talk in the book about his family, about his father basically having a couple of families, a couple of wives, and this set up some of the competition as to who would inherit the dynastic succession. Then, of course, Kim Jong-un was sent to Switzerland and, I believe, Germany for education. Could you just describe a little bit about what his childhood was like, both in Europe and in North Korea, and also how his father, Kim Jong-il, decided that the young Kim should become the follow-on leader, because it wasn't an obvious choice necessarily. Yeah, and the North Korean regime kept mum on this, and his father kept mum on this, probably because he didn't want to inspire more jockeying than there probably was, and also to avoid undermining his own rule by having others cast their loyalties elsewhere to the most likely successor. So it makes sense, from my perspective, for Kim Jong-il to be very circumspect about who might be the designated leader. So Kim Jong-un lived, like his father before him, a very privileged life, cocooned by his privilege, surrounded by small armies of servants and sycophants and family members and cooks and drivers and playmates. And the family had villas sprinkled throughout the country where there were horses and bowling alleys, swimming pools and cars that were redesigned so that children Kim Jong-un's age or Kim Jong-il's age could drive them when they were just children. From this cocoon of privilege, that was also transferred when Kim Jong-un was sent overseas to study in Switzerland. But I would add here that Kim Jong-un spent about four years overseas, as far as we can tell, whereas his older half-brother, Kim Jong-nam, spent many, many more years. If I recall correctly, it was about a decade that he spent his years overseas So Kim lived also in a life of luxury and ease outside of North Korea and Switzerland, going to the French Alps, going to the French Riviera, skiing in the Alps, going to various places in Europe. So I think he didn't live the life that one would typically expect an average North Korean would take, but he did live the life of what I think a lot of us will be familiar with is of a son of a dictator with all of the country's resources at his disposal. So for the past two generations of the Kim family, these are people who lived in a life of luxury and privilege. When we look at how Kim Jong-un was chosen over the others, Kim Jong-il, his father, had many consorts, and he had two favorite consorts, and Kim Jong-un's mother was one of those two favorite consorts, and Kim Jong-un has two siblings, two full siblings, and many other half-siblings. And it was said that because the eldest brother, Kim Jong-nam, was too tainted by outside influences given his years abroad, apparently Kim Jong-il was enraged when Kim Jong-nam suggested that the country open up. The second son is Kim Jong-un's full brother. He was reportedly not as aggressive enough, and Kim Jong-il eventually landed, whether by process of elimination or by active grooming, 
that Kim Jong-un, the youngest of the three boys in the family that would be the most likely to succeed because he was most like his father in his aggressiveness and his style. So that makes sense in that even though the culture would have suggested that the eldest son would take over, Kim Jong-il made the decision that his youngest son was the one that had the disposition and the will, as we learned, to take North Korea into the 21st century. Fascinating. So he comes back to North Korea from this period, this four-year period in Europe. One last thing I wanted to ask you about that time in the West, however, before we come back to his return and his ascent. Both his father, who, as you say in the book, loved James Bond movies and Rambo and obviously all these luxuries imported from the West and had a fascination also with Japanese movies and did some kidnapping of actors and so forth to try to create his own industry. And then the son, Kim Jong-un, who had a fascination, it appears, with American basketball, among other things. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. We know that Dennis Rodman, the American basketball great, wound up going over to visit a couple of times in the earlier years of Kim Jong-un's leadership of North Korea. But this was not a complete accident, right? That Kim Jong-un, like his father, had had a certain fascination with the West, even though he certainly didn't want his country to become like the West and often was at loggerheads with the United States or South Korea or Japan. And that was what was so tantalizing about the idea of the son of a North Korean dictator, the future dictator, having this Western education and to have that exposure. And I think our assumptions are that, of course, if you're going to be exposed to this open, liberal, Western lifestyle, that, of course, you're going to want to transfer that into your own country. And I think that when we think about Kim Jong-un as a child, I think we have to think of him as a child, not as a dictator-to-be, in that as a child growing up in the 90s, yes, of course, you're going to like Dennis Rodman. Of course, you're going to like Michael Jordan. Of course, you're going to love all of the Nintendo games and all of the things that marked the 1990s. But here, where you can like the luxuries of the West, but it doesn't mean that you have to adopt all of the Western ways, however you might define that. And I think it's also that even if he did want to do that, I think he was profoundly constrained by regime ideology from doing that. But maybe we'll talk later about how he has translated some of that, the West, as well as South Korean pop culture, and tried to transfer that and translate that into the North Korean context. But I think that was what made people wonder a lot when he first showed up, that because of his Western education, because he spent so much time being outside of North Korea, that he might be much more open. He could be the reformist. But I think those are more of our fantasies being transferred onto him rather than what was actually real. And whatever he might have an interest, hypothetically, in some degree of reform, if for no other reason than to have his country be a little more pleasant place to live, it seemed from your book that there were at least two other things that were even higher priorities for him when he came into power. And one was to show his internal rivals and opposition that he was in charge, that he wasn't some chubby-faced young guy who didn't know how to wield power. And then secondly, that he wanted to build up a strong enough military, there'd be no doubt in anybody's mind that North Korea was a force to be reckoned with. Could you talk a little bit first about the brutality, the killing of his uncle in 2013, the killing of his half-brother Kim Jong-nam in 2017, 
Also, in the same period of time, we have his strong reaction against that movie, the interview, the sort of farcical depiction of Kim, which led then to a very non-farcical and very serious attack by North Korean hackers against Sony and some serious threats that could even have involved violence if people had dared to go to the movie theaters to watch. So it seemed like in that period of time, he was intent on showing that he was very capable of being a tough guy, both in terms of his domestic opposition and in terms of his military and his weapons programs. What were the key milestones for you out of all those different things that you watched, which really struck you and helped solidify in your own mind that this really was a guy not to be trifled with? Kim almost certainly was aware of the scoffing, um, the doubts about his leadership skills. Oh, you know, the international community, all of the commentary was about how this is the end of North Korea after Kim Jong-il died and when Kim Jong-un came to power just shy of 28. This is the end. North Korea is definitely collapsing in the near future. There's no way that this kid, 27, 28 years old, is going to come into North Korea and lead it successfully. And I think his father was very aware of how he was going to gird his son's power. And so during a very compressed grooming process from the stroke in 2008 to December 2011, Kim Jong-il was mindful about creating this carapace around Kim Jong-un, having the uncle by marriage be one of his close advisors, and having the old guard be surrounding him. So when we look at the funeral procession, Kim is surrounded by seven others who represented the party in the military to show that there is a continuity between the past and the future and that these are the people, the institutions of North Korea that are supporting Kim Jong-un despite his youth. And I think that what we saw and that was surprising and probably surprising to those seven leaders who surrounded that hearse or the so-called gang of seven is that Kim quickly went through almost all of them. And in the first two years of his rule, he had purged, demoted, or disappeared five of the seven. And after that, the remaining two were demoted to such an extent or marginalized to an extent that they were a non-entity. So he did this within the first two years. And, of course, the killing of the uncle was one of the shocking points because it happened so early on in his rule. So this happened at the end of 2013. Remember, Kim Jong-un came to power in December of 2011. So just two years later, he has assassinated, he's executed his uncle by marriage in a very spectacular way. And this was shocking to Korea observers because family members don't get killed in such a brutal way, that he was killed by anti-aircraft guns and people were forced to watch. Family members who do wrong, they disappear for a few years, but then they come back. The uncle, Jang Sung-chek, who was killed in 2013, he had also disappeared and purged at least a couple of times, but he had always come back because he was married to Kim Jong-il's younger sister. So to kill a family member in this way and have all of the family's dirty laundry out in the open was shocking. It showed that Kim did not hesitate to do this, that he wanted to prune the family tree and to make sure that everybody knew who was boss. And so while the world scoffed at his youth, he took his youth and vigor and vision as an asset. And killing his uncle, that was a way of showing everybody who was boss, this is the new guy in town and everybody should be falling in line. What was so interesting about the uncle, Kim didn't just kill the uncle. He started systematically going through all of his 
family members, his closest contacts, his nephews, and other people who are close to him. And that really revealed the network of cronyism and nepotism that has seeped into or has been a part of the North Korean system for so long. Kim had an elaborate 6,000 word or thousands of words of why Chang Sung Tech was so terrible. He was anti-socialist. He was human scum. He was worth less than a dog. He tried to foment a coup. He was anti-North Korea. There was this litany of charges against him to show that he was outside of the bounds of what was acceptable. And his half-brother, again, was part of the pruning of the family tree in that when he was killed in Malaysia at the airport in Kuala Lumpur, and doing it in such a spectacular way, that was a message to the outside world how brutal he can be and that he needs business, but also internally that even outside the geographic boundaries of North Korea, Kim will find you and get you. Yeah, it's striking. I was noticing the fascination with Western movies that his father and to some extent the whole North Korean elite perhaps has had makes you think of The Godfather, where it's as if Kim Jong-un wanted to make sure none of us thought he was Fredo. And if there was any doubt that just because he looked a little funny, he was much more like Michael Corleone, maybe even on steroids, than he was like Fredo. But it's striking. And also throughout this period, as you document, the North Korean military is improving. And that was a top priority for Kim. And of the, I think now, six nuclear tests that North Korea has conducted, I believe four are on Kim Jong-un's watch. Is that right? Right, And also all three uh, long-range ICBM tests, which could put the United States at risk from a nuclear-tipped long-range missile in theory. One more thing you say in the book is that Kim was willing to accept failure if a test went awry or something didn't work out. I don't know what he did to the the unlucky scientists who were associated with that test, but he was willing to admit to the world the test failed and just go back to the drawing board and make sure it worked the next time. So there was a little bit more of a Western sense, maybe a Swiss sense of precision. If it didn't work the first time, let's get it right the next time rather than pretend that we're just living in this Potemkin village. Is that an important theme as well here, the modernization of the North Korean military on his watch. Right. And that's part of his style, too, which is transparency, in that when something fails, he says something failed. Whereas before, Kim Jong-il used to sweep failures under the rug or just not acknowledge it. But Kim is much more transparent in many ways, transparent and very hands-on. He's there at the satellite command center. He's there at the ballistic missile test. He's in the sea observing SLBM tests. He is sitting there at the table with military commanders, marking up maps and providing guidance. So he's very hands-on in the military. So he has amped up the nuclear weapons program, but he's also amped up the conventional military capabilities as well with an eye toward putting the resources in certain sectors. So he has focused on a lot of realistic training and making sure that the officers and the people in the military are being trained, whether it's at night or on a dirt road or on a beach and that the officers themselves are physically fit. I remember when he told some Korean people's Navy officers to strip down and do laps in the ocean. And you can imagine how some of the older officers might have felt very scared about their performance. And again, he's using his youth and vigor as an asset in a way to call the older people. He said once that moss grows under stones if they're not rolled over. So there's this constant need to 
transparently train people, make sure that they know what's expected of them. I also think that when he talks about failures, about the need to do better, he's also said that he needs to do better. But I think it's a warning to others. I think if I were sitting in that auditorium or that meeting hall listening to Kim, that I would take that as, well, if my leader is working and he recognizes some of his deficiencies, then I better get my act together and make sure that I do my very best. He hasn't been content with just the nuclear weapons and the longer-range ballistic missiles, but he also wants to make sure that his conventional military is as good as it can get. But let's face it, they're working with 1950s, 1960s equipment. Some of them work, some of them don't, but that's what he has to work with. So two more things I'd like to ask you about before we finish up, and one is about the economic and reform agenda, such as it is, which you've already thrown a little bit of cold water on. You also talk about Pyonghattan and water parks and Kim Jong-un's efforts to bring a little higher quality of life to at least the elites in North Korea and at least allow other people to see the trappings of modernity, even if most of them will never enjoy those, and he's got the stylish wife, the stylish sister. He seems to want to portray a little bit more of a hip, with it kind of existence, even though he certainly hasn't opened up the politics or the information flow into the country. But I want to hear you talk a little bit about that. And then I want to come back, of course, to President Trump and his outreach towards Kim Jong-un and what that bodes for the future, what we've learned, and what you conclude, again, putting on your CIA hat and invoking your mentor, Richard Hewer, that I know you want to speak about also, how we have to avoid giving the wrong messages to Kim and learning the wrong lessons ourselves from this experience. But could you, before I get to that and the Trump-Kim relationship, could you talk a little, please, about economic reform. How's it going in North Korea? They've been severely sanctioned now for a couple of years, so that's put a damper on any progress, but they've also made some headway, and Kim seems to want to open up, have a little more of a market economy, a little more of a skyline in Pyongyang, etc. How do you juxtapose those competing concerns and tendencies? So Kim wanted to create a socialist fairyland, is what he called it, and some of the trends started with the father, the water park projects and the apartment complexes that started with the father. But as with the military program, Kim Jong-un really amped up and really accelerated the building boom in Pyongyang and elsewhere. And it's this idea of, I think, what he's trying to do with the high-end restaurants, the department stores that sell luxury items, the coffee shops, the Italian restaurants, the high-rises, the taxi cabs all the shopping. I think that Kim wants to combat the idea of a failed state, of a decrepit, economically hobbled North Korea that is constantly scrounging around for bits from humanitarian organizations. But he wants to project this 21st century modern North Korea with its computers, with its tablets, its laptops. And this is part of his policy that he introduced in 2013, where he said that he told the people that they didn't have to tighten their belts anymore, but they could have nuclear weapons and economic prosperity. So he's been doing the nuclear weapons part well, and he also at least has the superficial look of economic prosperity. And to be honest, people in North Korea are making money, and that's the result of this marketization that had been happening ever since the famine of the 1990s when people could not rely on the state anymore, so they resorted to smuggling and trading across the border. And it was this 900-mile border with 
China that provided this lifeline. So people are making money, which means that the regime is also benefiting from all of this. In Pyongyang, he has this showcase city where you have all of the amenities and the luxuries that we might see elsewhere. And he's also developed other parts of the country. He's trying to replicate through cellular replication of what he's been doing in Pyongyang with the restaurants and the high-rises in the various provinces, as well as in the beach resort area of Wonsan, where paradoxically he's also launched ballistic missiles. So this is a part of this narrative of we can be the strong, militarily strong country, but we don't have to sacrifice our economic prosperity to put all of our money and our resources into the military. We can have it all. That is a big thing for now 36-year-old to be handling, given the fact that he also has to procure luxury items to keep his elite happy. So he's taken on a lot, but I think it's consistent with his aggressiveness and a confidence that I think is born of privilege, where no one ever says no to you. Everything that you do is great or the best thing that anybody's ever seen. So when you're coddled and continually surrounded by sycophants who are trying to curry favor, you kind of do feel like you are that god and that you can do all of those things. But I think what we see now with COVID and the global pandemic, the fact that he's locked down his borders and that the economy is shrinking, and there are lots of reports about how there's a lot of grumbling and economic anxiety in North Korea, he can't do it all. And sanctions are also contributing to this sense, this burden on North Korea at this point. So let me now invite you to talk a little bit about where we stand with the nuclear negotiations with Kim and the broader U.S.-North Korea relationship. And just a quick word from me first. I also want to give a shout out to the part of your book that is a personal story about how to be a good analyst and how to learn from your mistakes and how all analysts need to learn from their mistakes. And you really invoke, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, but Richard's Hewer and his book on intelligence several times, especially when you're talking about the Trump-Kim relationship. And you say two things there that really struck me. One was that you reminded yourself and all of us who are in the foreign policy field that maybe we should give Trump's new type of diplomacy where he's actually now had three summits with the North Korean leader, the first time any American president ever met face-to-face with a North Korean dictator, and Trump's done it three times, and maybe we should be a little more open-minded and not just fall back on patterns of behavior that we're used to as foreign policy specialists, you know, and rules that you should never meet with a North Korean leader until there's a deliverable, and et cetera, et cetera, the kinds of things we tend to say to each other. And maybe we should give Trump a little bit of slack on trying something unconventional when previous policies hadn't worked very well. But then you also conclude, again, I'm interpreting and summarizing, and you can correct me here if I'm getting this wrong, but you also conclude that Trump hasn't really wound up in a very good place as of this point in 2020 because he's sending too many mixed messages to Kim and sort of doing mirror imaging, which Richard's Hewer warns against. Trump seems to think that Kim wants to do a big real estate-like deal with making a lot of money and opening up to the world economy, and Trump is projecting his own worldview and his own values onto Kim, and this has led him into sort of a sloppy form of diplomacy where he's giving Kim little rewards or leading him on in ways that ultimately don't bear fruit, don't lead to a constructive diplomatic path forward. So did I get that basically right, and where do you see us now in this three-plus years into the Trump administration, two years almost since Trump first met with Kim in Singapore. 
three summits now under the bridge, but really no sense of positive momentum in the relationship or in the nuclear weapons negotiations. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I would say that being a North Korea analyst is one of the most onerous jobs <laughs> that you could ask for. It's deeply uncomfortable doing North Korea analysis. And I was always uncomfortable inside the agency. I'm uncomfortable now. I'm always trying to go through my mind of all of the various issues. What am I missing? What if I'm wrong? What if they're wrong? It's humbling and also humiliating because you can be so wrong about so many things. But also doing this for so many years, you learn how to manage and process ambiguity. And I'm still learning to do that. I'm constantly reminding myself and trying to refresh myself. As I mentioned in the book, Richard Hoyer, he spent many decades in the CIA. He was both in the clandestine service as well as in analysis. But when we first come in as analysts, this is handed to us like this is the Bible of CIA analyst training. And it's because it makes you uncomfortable. It says you may not be thinking the right way. No, you are not thinking the right way. And this is how you figure out what's missing. And so try to do structured analysis, trying to keep yourself uncomfortable so that maybe you can try to explore all potential scenarios and issues. And so when I look at Kim, and this goes back to how I wanted to present him as this very multidimensional person, it's also important to not see him the way we want to see him. And Hoyer reminded us that be careful about what your assumptions are. What is your perspective? How are you viewing this person? Be careful about confirmation bias. Be careful about vividness bias in which if you actually meet somebody that you tend to weigh that interaction more than you would reading intelligence from somebody else. So when I look at Trump and with all the summits and all the meetings, Trump admitted he was very open about how he didn't need to prepare because he's done deals before. So when you come at this from the perspective of a New York City business person who has never governed or worked in the government before or engaged in diplomacy, high-stakes diplomacy, much less with somebody who is a dictator with nuclear weapons, you tend to see the other person as being like all the other people that you've met in your life. And so when I saw Trump owning this relationship, leader-to-leader, man-to-man, I thought there were serious problems in a couple of ways. One is if they got along way too well, or two, if they didn't get along at all. And so Trump approached Kim from the perspective of a New York City businessman and thinking that to make this great deal, Kim wants to be rich, he wants to make deals, he wants foreign investment to develop the beach resorts, he wants foreign investment to develop the infrastructure He wants all of the American technical expertise and the American entrepreneurs flooding into North Korea and throwing money at Kim. I think that it was the absolute wrong approach. Kim has all the money that he wants. He's got the villas. He can travel anywhere. He's got highly advanced nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles to deliver them. And despite the sanctions and this pariah status, he had multiple meetings with Chinese President Xi, multiple meetings with the U.S. president, multiple meetings with the South Korean president, and one with the Russian leader. So he did that without having all of that coming in. And I think while Trump thought Kim wanted all of this, for Kim, from his perspective, these are threats. He doesn't want people, Americans, running around inside his country. He doesn't want investment that he can't control. So when he wants investments, he wants to be funneled towards sectors that he can control. And so tourism is a main 
regime goal for revenue generation because, you know, let's think about it. When we go to an island for our vacation, a lot of people just don't leave the resort. They just stay very much confined. They're not spreading these very anti-North Korean ideas outside, talking to average people or the taxi driver. They're very confined in this very touristy area. So I think we have to be careful about and constantly think about how Kim sees us as much as how we see him. And I have to say that when Kim did this pivot to diplomacy in early 2018, there was a lot of optimism that this is it. He is different from his father and his grandfather. This is it. He's young. And so his youth and the fact that he did this sudden pivot really was a tantalizing thing for people who saw this, that this is our opportunity. Yes, Trump should make a deal. It doesn't have to be complete denuclearization. It can be some phased aspect of it. And I remember thinking then, as well as government analysts, are we too bogged down? Are we too burdened by the history of failed negotiations that we can't see new information? We can't see new behaviors. And I think that perhaps this is something that time has shown, is that Kim is not interested in opening up. He is not interested in economic reform. And I don't think he's actually interested in security guarantees, which is a really vague and infinitely expandable way of trying to extract more and more from the United States and the outside world. And so the way we have it now in the UN panel of experts report that was recently published suggests that Kim has continued to develop his weapons. He hasn't made significant changes in the economy. In fact, as 2020 started, Kim said, we just have to double down on our way. We don't need diplomacy. We don't need the outside world. We're going to do this our own way. And I'm not going to just bargain away my nuclear weapons for some mere morsel from the United States. It's really interesting. I could go on with more questions. And also, I'd just love to know your predictions but maybe we'll save some of that for uh, the rest of your book tour and and also what you're going to write in the coming months as we watch what happens and how it intersects with the U.S. presidential race and with the COVID-19 crisis and everything else. So, John, congratulations. Best wishes with the book, and thanks for the uh, privilege of talking today. Mike, thank you so much for all that you do, and thank you for this great interview. I couldn't have imagined doing it with anybody else. Oh, so kind. Thank you. Privileged. It's all mine. Thank you. You can order the book, Becoming Kim Jong-un, A Former CIA Officer's Insights into North Korea's Enigmatic Young Dictator, published just this week by Ballantine Books, from independent bookstores nationwide. The Brookings Cafeteria podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, starting with audio engineer Gaston Reveredo and producer Chris McKenna. Bill Feynman, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews, and Lizette Baylor and Eric Abalahan provide design and web support. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, The Current, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. 
You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.